0: If this pandemic has taught us anything, it is that none of us know anything. And if someone says that they know what's happening next, then I would say they're full of it. In today's episode, which is co-hosted by myself, Shmuel Fischler, and John Hirschfield, which you'll hear from himself, we address two topics. Number one is how do we hope we come out of this? What do we learn from it? how will it make us different? What might we gain from it? And number two is what this experience of living through this pandemic and everything that comes along with it is like and maybe different for those who already deal with anxiety or some form of anxiety. We hope you enjoy. And if you do, please support us by reviewing, rating, sharing, and the like. This is Mental Filter. Welcome back everybody to another episode of Mental Filter where we take the opportunity to talk about pretty much anything and everything all through the lens of mental health with some mental health professionals and other cool and interesting people and today is no exception. So before we get into the topic of the day, I would like to introduce and allow himself to introduce... Our co-host John Hirschfield, who is a friend and a colleague. So, without further ado, before we talk about our topic, John, can you please introduce yourself?
1: Hi, everyone. I'm I'm John Hirschfield. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and director of the OCD and Anxiety Center of Greater Baltimore in Hunt Valley, Maryland. And Yashmuel's been a a great friend and and colleague over the years, uh, also here in Maryland. I specialize in uh, the treatment of OCD and related disorders uh, using cognitive behavioral therapy, ERP have a strong affinity for mindfulness and mindfulness-based interventions. I've written a few books on the subject. And uh, thanks for having me on, Chabu.
0: Thank you for being here, John. And I'm sure a lot of listeners are familiar with John's work. And I I, I do consider it a, a privilege to have a good relationship with John. And like John said, I am in the vicinity. I am a licensed clinical social worker. And our practice, CBT Baltimore, is just a bit north of Baltimore. And Really collaborated uh, with John and, and learned a lot from him. So I'm excited that he's here. So, the topic of the day is an interesting one. I mean, I'd like to think all our topics are interesting. <laughs> oh, I want to take the opportunity today for us to d- talk with each other and let other people listen about the whole experience, what I would maybe refer to as the pre COVID era, and hopefully soon <laughs> the post COVID era, how it might change us individually socially, economically, health system wise, the way we approach things, and then the experience of this is not going to be about all the other people talking about the the restrictions and what you should do and what you shouldn't do and tips on how to manage. Uh, You've been getting a lot of that, I'm sure, but I wanted to talk with John and get a feel for what the experience is like in this whole strange Twilight Zone experience that we're all in. And then hopefully we'll have time to touch on specifically for people. John and I are both very, very familiar working with people with anxiety and OCD and what the experience might look like for those people who maybe it's a little bit more unique, maybe positive, maybe negative, of going through this experience already dealing with anxiety and OCD. So that's the topic of the day. Now, I've had some really interesting observations that clients have shared with me. But before that, John, can you, if you're comfortable sharing, sort of from your perspective as an individual and as a provider, how has this experience been for you and for maybe some of your clients?
1: Yeah, one of the interesting things about something that's this large in scope is is how universal it is. So I'm watching all of my clients go through this experience and I'm also going through this experience. And I don't actually know more than they know about how to go through this experience. I mean, yes, I'm a therapist. I specialize in OCD and anxiety and I can help them navigate that part of the terrain, but I don't work for the CDC and I'm not a journalist or a scientist or anything like that. So I'm also going through this very personal thing. So it feels very much... um, in a way, it's made me feel a lot closer to my clients in, in some ways. And it's sort of like, we're going through this together. We're going to figure it out together. And it's allowed for me to experience even, you know, maybe some more vulnerability in the room with them. I'm like, yeah, this is really scary. Instead of sometimes when you work with OCD and anxiety, there's a little bit of a pressure to, you know, be an anchor for someone and be a beacon uh, for someone to to overcome their fear because their fear is irrational and they're thinking about it wrong and they just need to do exposure to it. But then there's a time like this where we need to just be willing to sit with the fear and, you know, obviously not get carried away with catastrophizing and things like that. But to be able to say to someone like, yeah, it is really scary. It's okay to be scared. And it's not just okay to be scared because that's what it says in all the self-help books. Like, I'm scared too. And that's okay. And I'm making space for that.
0: Right. Uh, Yeah. I can certainly echo the experience you're describing—it's there's there's a parallel. There's a, this is this is real. Even though a sincere therapist is going to try their best to join with them in what they're experiencing, but this feels so real for all of us. And there's a parallel to some of the things that I share with clients, and maybe you do as well. Is that when we're trying to frame some of our anxieties, we're trying to frame it as that really I'm no different than you, and that in the sense that I'm not any more sure than you, that I'm going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And now when it's really been shoved in our faces of all the uncertainty and things that are beyond our control, and we don't know where the beginning, where the end, what we should do, what we shouldn't do. Now it's really been stuck in our faces of, yeah, we really are in the same boat. (laughs) <laughs> and we are sharing this experience. So I second that and I have a better appreciation. I thought I had appreciation before, but I, have, I think I have an, either, an even deeper appreciation for what some of my clients have uh, experienced and feel, yeah, feel more connected to them in the, in the sense that uh, this is what it's like to, to live with anxiety.
1: I think, I think usually your client is going through something that you haven't gone through you've gone through the emotions or maybe you've had the thoughts. And so you connect at that level, but you haven't gone through the actual experience of, you know, uh, you know, their boyfriend didn't break up with you, you know, you you're not having that same experience as them and you're trying to find that common ground. Whereas this, it's, it's more like after a severe event, like a tornado toward through your town, you know, like what happened in Nashville recently, or you know, I would imagine, not that I have any context for this, you know, there, that a war got started or something like that. Where really you are having the same experience, and you're there to kind of help them navigate it, but you're also navigating it along with them right it's, uh,
0: it reminds me it reminds me of this cute uh it was it went around the uh, pretty widespread there was a animated video a while ago from brene Brown on the difference between empathy and sympathy it's cute mm-hmm. it's like a two three minute video um you know I have thoughts on the video, but the basic premise was that Empathy is not standing away from someone saying, oh, you know, are you okay over there? Empathy is finding a way to connect on some level and joining with them, even if you don't have the same exact experience, but we all have experienced loss on some level. We've all have experienced worry on some level, sadness on some level, pain on some level, and trying to connect with them on some You know, molecular level of that experience, but now it's almost easier to do that to have that empathy because we are truly experiencing something similar. This is, you know, COVID has really hasn't discriminated at all. It's like a equal opportunist COVID.
1: Yeah, it's interesting to see how how my different clients are 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 handling it differently. I mean, you see a lot of things in the media about you know, this is the time people with OCD have been waiting for, and you and I have discussed it before we start recording about how uh, people think that, uh, every, you know, people with OCD or anxiety, that their OCD or anxiety must be like really bad. And they're, they're wanting a lot more therapy now. And you know, there's some instances where I'm seeing spikes in people's needs, but not as much as, as you would expect for, for a lot of interesting, interesting reasons. The The people I'm seeing I'm seeing very little struggle with just what's happening because what's happening is so much bigger than an intrusive thought or something like that. I'm seeing all these sort of like tagalog obsessions that are coming up, things like related to whether or not I'm having the right emotional response to this, or maybe I'm having a thought about, well, maybe it wouldn't be so bad if this person got COVID and died or no, I shouldn't have had that thought, you know, something like that. That's really a lot of what I work with. I'm also finding the people, especially the people who were starting to really hit their stride and get better, having a hard time having the normal everyday life just ripped out of their hands. Like they were about to build a normal everyday life based on all of their exposures, especially with social anxiety, you know, getting out there, talking to coworkers or applying for jobs or taking public transportation and doing all these things that they had to work really hard to get to do. And now they're not allowed out of the house. And, and it's really horrifying for, for some of them.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. It's interesting. I've I've had a mixed bag. So I, I, I've heard some of the things that you describe where it's like an ancillary thought that not directly related, anxiety related to COVID, but whatever the intrusive thoughts are, now connect to it. It's almost like an opportunity for some other intrusive thought to come up. So let's say I have a client who is struggling with, some obsessive thoughts uh, scrupulosity, which for those listening we're not going to get into a whole detailed OCD description, but someone who might be experiencing OCD within the framework of uh, religion pr- religious practice or morality or things like that so I've had clients who, who have struggled with that and now not not only did I pray right did I pray correctly but there's so much riding on this prayer because if I pray right then people are going to be okay. If I don't pray right because of COVID, people are not going to be okay. So it's really like latched itself onto. On the flip side though, I will say that I have had plenty of clients who have already been in treatment and made so many strides are actually doing awesome. It's not that they've been prepared for this, but if you think of it objectively, Intrusive thoughts about quote unquote risk or uncertainty. I mean, this is the, what they've been working on for a long time of trying to be able to tolerate that. And so this is not necessarily something so out of the blue or unusual for them that hey, there is a threat. now what to what degree do I? Do I absorb that threat and what do I do about it is something else. But the fact that there is another threat, another risk in my stratosphere is not something so new for someone who's already been struggling and dealing with OCD.
1: Yeah. So the idea is something is happening and I don't like it and I'm being asked to accept it. But I've been practicing that. I've been practicing accepting the fact that I'm having thoughts that I don't want to have. Or that I'm having intrusive images or or emotions that I or sensations that I don't want to have. I've been in therapy and it's been effective, and I've been practicing making space for these things. So this is just another thing that I need to practice making space for. I've been really touched by some of the feedback that I've gotten from some of my clients lately, especially those who I've been working with for a while and i been sort of watching them progress along their journey. The feedback has been, I don't think I would have been able to handle this as well as I have been were not for the work leading up to this, the, you know, the gratitude for having access to this, to this belief that, okay, I, I can, I can navigate this. It's not going to be pretty, but I, I can tolerate this uncertainty or I can open up to it because this is what all this work has been leading up to. And wow, that's, that's really, uh,
0: that's really, that's really nice to hear.
1: Yeah, as a clinician, it's just really, really uh, heartwarming, because that's what you hope. I mean, you never hope that someone's going to have to face some sort of terrible situation like this. But if they do, and they think that they have strength they would have had before as a function of working with you, wow, what, what a great job we have.
0: Wow, that's that's really validating. It's like the old uh, the old saying of, Give someone a fish, you feed them for a day, teach them to fish and you feed them for a lifetime, something like that. Yes, so yes, that's right. The goal, I, I think, I'm sure you would agree with this, the goal in, in our positions, the, the privilege we have of being a, a clinician for people is to help turn them into their own therapists and be able to handle, take the skills that they've learned and they've practiced and they've worked on to be able to handle all sorts of situations. So, and we don't always get to hear that. So to be able to hear that is really nice. I'm, I'm really glad that you brought up you mentioned social anxiety a couple minutes ago, and let's, let, let's talk about that a little bit because on one hand, it certainly does create challenges if you're trying to, if you made all this progress and you're trying to work on social anxiety, and for those that are unfamiliar, some of the work when you're working with someone with social anxiety is to get out there and do the things that we're terrified of doing and doing some exposures around that and sort of testing that out so that we can relearn our experiences in a social context. So in order to do that, you actually need to be able to be in a social environment. And COVID hasn't really helped with that, all that much.
1: No, no, there's some workarounds. I mean, you know, there's some online social behavior, there's phone calls, you might be uh, resisting making, but there's nothing quite the same as being in a room with someone and, and taking that risk that they may evaluate you negatively because of a behavioral choice you made.
0: Right. So with technology, there's still been some opportunities, which it, it forces us to be creative. And it's it's it could be, you know, really interesting uh, being on Zoom calls. I've had people, you know, a lot of people with social anxiety will have this hyper awareness of how they look. They're sweating, they're blushing they're And I've, I've had clients, you know, go into a Zoom meeting and make sure to put on blush uh, mm-hmm. male and female, so that they, you know, so they can sort of bring up that, that possibility. But I've, I've been surprised, actually. And I think the, the layperson, someone who doesn't have anxiety can appreciate this because we're trying to talk to the, the layperson as well, that being, the, the, the impact of, of being socially isolated and people, people are starting to realize that even if I'm not a major extrovert, I'm not Mr. Social, how social we actually are. People have been commenting and clients have been commenting. It's like, I miss those little social interactions. You know, I'm walking around the office or I go to the gym and I just say hello to that person. Hello to that person. I go to the bank. I go to the store. My mother used to have on the refrigerator as a kid, it said there was a, it was a sticker and it said, we don't realize what we have until we don't have it. And you mentioned gratitude before. I certainly hope I can speak for myself that there's no question I'm going to be more grateful for Little things that we have way more than before because there are those little things that we didn't realize, like how much we do. We didn't realize how social we are. We didn't realize how much we moved. I've been trying to encourage people to move, and you know, realize even if you didn't go to the gym to exercise, you still moved a whole bunch.
1: I had to walk down the hall at my office to get to the bathroom, and I realized (laughs) that's like a good thousand steps a day. That now I have to actually remember to take, you know, my my driveway yeah the little things that are that are funny about all this i i I went to my office my the ghost town of my office uh yeah. last week to get the mail. I find that that's like in, in many ways the hardest part for me that's just the emotional tax of seeing the world operating this way right now of seeing the office empty. Uh, I had to go to the grocery store the other day, and, and uh, you know, Wegmans did a phenomenal job of making us feel safe, controlling the number of people in the store, keeping us at a safe distance apart from one another, sanitizing the carts in front of us, and then handing it to us. I mean, a really phenomenal job. But I don't, I don't want that society to look like that i'm still i'm resistant to it i haven't just been like oh well this is how the world is i found myself just becoming very unhappy about okay this is this is the way the world is and i don't know when it's going to stop being this way
0: it's like this open ended when does the story end we were joking before we started recording it's like a scene right out of a movie i told john before i was like I, I i i was so sure that i took the blue pill and not the red pill and, <laughs> and i'm waiting for keanu reeves to just like pop up and say okay you were in a pod the whole time, let's, yeah. let's, let, let's unplug and, and get into the real world. And it's just like, it's an eerie twilight zone type of uh, reality right now.
1: Yeah, and he could, do, he could do some slow motion capoeira to some cool 90s beats and then we'd all be done with this. <laughs> but you know, so I went to my office and I took the office plant uh, from the uh, from the waiting room and now it's in my home office. And that's nice. It's like, you know, it makes it's, it's familiar. The thing is this time of year, there's some sort of gnat or whatever that I guess lives in the soil of the plant that haunts me in the office. They, they buzz around in my face while I'm trying to do work. And every time I think I've killed the last one, another one pops up. And now they're in this room that I'm trapped in all day in my home, which is, it's actually kind of nice in a strange way. These annoying gnats, they're kind of like a little bit of familiar, familiarity as I'm trying to adjust to this new lifestyle. You're not
0: alone in your quarantine. You are quarantined with the gnats. Yes, exactly. maybe you need From to start naming the office them. plant.
1: Uh, I think there might be, I don't know if I can name them or not. I try <laughs> not to name things I intentionally kill. but. Uh... <laughs> so
0: back to what we were just saying a minute ago about, about you know, some of the observations with social anxiety, and, and I want to use that as a little bit of a segue. I've had some clients mention this and, and lay people, and I've thought this myself, and for some people they may not feel comfortable saying this out loud or they may not feel it's pc or it's too early but i think there is sort of the concept of the the gift or the blessing that covid has has given some of us surprisingly and it doesn't mean to minimize the the loss and and the pain and and god forbid i'm not suggesting that at all but there have been some things that that i think people have we've been forced to, to look at, to reflect, and, and to learn from. Specific to social anxiety for a second, I had a client who, you know, struggled with social anxiety, and now being in isolation has actually motivated him so much more. He's, like, craving to go out and socialize. Mm. He's, like, chomping at the bit. You know what? When, when we get out of here, he's, like, initially – I thought this would be like my fantasy for someone, for someone who's socially anxious. Good. I don't have to deal with people. Awesome. And now that, he, and now that he's in it, it's like, mm, you yeah, know, it's not as all scrapped up scary, to scary
1: has become desirable. Yeah.
0: Right. And, it, and, it's, and it's motivating me say, I really want to, to socialize. And I had another person mention to me. Well, they didn't mention this to me exactly. But what, what's happening is I've experienced this. You've experienced this. Other people have experienced this. In order to be social now, you really have to initiate something. It's not You're not just walking down the hallway, like we were saying before, and you say, hey, what's up? Or you're going to the gym. You want to connect with someone, and connecting is a real basic human need to connect and to socialize. Now you have to make the effort and connect with someone, whether it's a phone call or a FaceTime call or a text, whatever it is. You have to actually pursue it, which I think builds this uh, deeper engagement when you are initiating that. At least that's just been my observation, both personally and professionally, how it's like forced us now we really have to engage socially, even though we're far apart, which is ironic.
1: It's a mixed bag for me. I I, I definitely see your point and agree with it that when there's intention behind the interaction, there's a certain value that that interaction has, that if it was just two people in the same place at the same time by accident you know if i'm reaching out to you because i want to talk to you i mean this conversation we're having now it started with a little back and forth email and then it was like oh we should we should talk you know and, and there's, there's an intention behind it that that has a certain value that's really nice but i think there's a there's a space between that and then it reaches a critical mass where it's too much where all the online social activity actually just kind of turns and, and feels like a reminder of what we can't have and, as someone is doing teletherapy all day every day, it's also you, know, you get eye fatigue and ear fatigue, and then eventually you get empathy and compassion fatigue as well and you know that's always difficult as a therapist anyway, but then when you're adding this element of being in front of the computer and, and talking to an image and, and having the headphones in and the rest of that over time, it can get pretty frustrating, and one of the things that not to take your point of silver linings, which I totally agree with and turn it into something unpleasant. But one of the things that, that I actually am sort of grieving or worrying about is about the future, not in a catastrophic way, but in a, in a way of when this is all over and we all go back to uh, resuming our regularly programmed lives, shaking hands and hugging and kind of just the kind of little interactions and the stuff that, the stuff that I'm very used to that I consider a big part of socializing, you know, we'll do it, but we're going to be weird about it for a while, you know, and it's, always, it's good for a long time. It's going to have an asterisk at the bottom that says, oh, I remember when we couldn't do this. And there's, it's going to be a little stilted. I'm going to be so grateful to be able to high five and shake hands and and, and hug people. But I, I, I'm i almost anticipating missing it being not special. I don't want it to be special for too long. <laughs> Does that right. make
0: sense? So no, it's a really, it's a really good point. I have a, I have a friend who's who would fall under the category of being a hugger, (laughs) you know, and, and I was talking to him and it's really hard to not be able to hug someone. And it's a, it's a good point. It's a good question. The post COVID era again, hopefully soon, like, what's it going to look like? Is it going to, how is it going to change? How's it going to change us socially? How is it going to change? You mentioned about, being a therapist and there's lots of other professions that are doing telework, how is it going to change how we provide services and what's yeah. going to be the long-term impact? I, in, on one hand, I have an image in my head of like two crowds of people on one side of a field and the other side of a field and when we get released from this, they rush to each other and everyone's jumping in each other's arms and, and hugging and high-fiving and there's some music in the background and then the credits start to roll. And you know, that's <laughs> the, the image that I have of once, once we're released from this. On the other hand, I, I think you make some really valid points. How is this going to change us? And there's no question this is going to change us. This is not something we're gonna forget very easily. This is so universal. And global how is this going to affect us so you mentioned a couple things of what the post-COVID era might look like what do you think I mean we can sit here and, and pretend to predict as if we know anything we don't know anything how might it affect how different professions operate so not only how we socialize like you mentioned and you could talk more about that but also how, do we, how are services provided to people? Are people going to go back to the way things were? Are people going to stay in this, in this telehealth, telework type of... Uh... Yeah, I had, a,
1: I had a friend who pointed out that, that probably a lot of big corporations aren't going to be uh, spending money on sending people to uh, faraway places for conferences and stuff like that that could be done via you know for uh you know important business meetings that could now you know people are going to be used to doing telework so instead of flying you out to uh japan for that uh, for that big sale uh, let's just do it on zoom you know i I imagine it'll have an impact on a lot of different professions i mean it goes to what i've been telling all of my clients when as I said before i don't have very many answers that they don't already have access to the most important thing right now. Is to take care of your mental health because those people that you just described, you know, running in the field to each other's arms—it's the healthy ones, the, the the ones who've been taking care of themselves, who've been patient and compassionate, and and continuing to, to tend to their mental health in positive ways. That we want to repopulate this new society. We want them to be on the front lines of of going back to work. You know, that that's the person I want to greet when I go back into the store. And, and I need to ask them for help to find something, that's the person that I want to see is the person who's been taking care of themselves, not the person for the last three months that's been uh, letting go of all of their mental hygiene and are kind of coming out completely shell-shocked and having to start from scratch reintegrating into society because they haven't been tending to that very, very important part of who they are.
0: Right, and I think, unfortunately, I think that might be undervalued by many people right now, not realizing because it's not so black and white to them or not so concrete that A plus B equals C that what's going to happen if we don't tend to our mental health? And people are realizing it more and more.
1: And my clients are already doing it, but of course they're already mental health clients, right? They're right. already people who are very interested in taking care of their mental health.
0: Right, exactly. So in a sense, it's, it's okay to get knocked down, but we don't want to get stuck knocked down. We want to be able to get back up off the mat when this is over and the way to set ourselves up to be able to get back up off the mat when this is over is to tend to ourselves and our mental health while we're down on the mat so that we can then get up.
1: And I think the key to that to doing a you know the best possible job of that is not just following some blog or some YouTube video that says, well, here's how you're supposed to take care of your mental health. I think the key to that is actually understanding yourself well enough. So we were talking before about engaging someone through social media or through uh, televideo or something like that is a great way to show the value of social behavior. But too much of that actually might not be great for your mental health. So knowing who you are and where you fall on that spectrum is super important. For some people, it might be uh, hardly uh, reading the news at all, maybe just touching base once a day or ignoring it completely. And for other people, uh, I know like for me, it's actually kind of engaging with it throughout the day, a little bit at a time, but multiple times throughout the day, because that actually makes me feel connected and, and nourished. But there's a point at which I could do it too much, and then it's just going to make me unhappy. So finding that balance for yourself. It's not as simple as, you know, don't do this and and do that. It's about having that flexibility, even with things like diet and exercise. Exercise a lot, but for some person, it might be too much. Maybe they need to chill out and spend more time watching TV. And for another person, maybe don't watch so much TV. Maybe you need to be, you know, taking more walks. So finding that.
0: That's a really good point uh, that not as many people are talking about of finding the balance of what works for you. It's not arbitrary. It's not black and white. There's no gospel out there of do this and don't do that i mean i found with myself being being able to be self-aware of like you know what this is this is too much like information is important but too much information is like i i feel it i feel it it's not this yeah. is not this is not serving me a it's not serving me well this is not good for me or doing you know too much of this or too little of this is not it's not it's not feeling good and so a hundred percent that people have to acknowledge what works for them and what doesn't work for them. So I want to shift a a tiny drop and help people out there. So everyone, I think everyone out there can have a better appreciation of anxiety in general. Everyone is experiencing some level of anxiety now and some level of uncertainty and not knowing what's happening next, not being in control, all those things. Let's just talk just a little bit and try to give People, people listening, an appreciation of how this might be look a little bit different, where the experiences for people who already have anxiety, and people who already have OCD, and especially I want to focus on a lot of the information that is out there now about precautions, about hand washing, about sanitizing, and. Help people see it through the lens, through the eyes of someone who already has anxiety and OCD when they're hearing something on the radio or hearing some PSA of do this. I know for myself, I've, there's a couple, there's a whole bunch of things. I, I, there was some post, I think it was on Twitter that obviously they are not very educated on OCD. It was the, the title was something along the lines of, are your hands getting chapped and dry from washing so much? don't stop.
1: And, and <laughs> yeah, like, I've seen a few like, things like that. Yeah, and I was like, what? what?
0: So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the the unique experience of people who already have anxiety and OCD living through this and also touching on the information that's, that's getting out there.
1: I think for a lot of people with OCD and anxiety, I mean, those things can be really offensive and deflating because they work really hard to master their symptoms and have it reflected back to them that the non-OCD or non-anxiety disordered world thinks that it's cute, is, it's really offensive and, and, and painful. Not everything has changed, right? OCD didn't suddenly become a good thing. It didn't suddenly stop being a, a mental health condition, a disorder. When you know you and I in 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 the same uh, profession here, you know when we work with people who have contamination fears, we often challenge them to do all kinds of kind of interesting things. We overcorrect a little bit for how careful they are, and we were doing this when there wasn't a psychopath of a virus trying to kill us all, right? And now that little detail has changed, but it hasn't changed everywhere. So you see all this talk about wash your hands frequently and disinfect this and avoid this and that, but. It's not true 100% of the time in every context and every environment. You, know, we were, you know, I'm in my house with my family. We haven't been out at all. And uh, yeah, if I go out, I come back in. I have some, I'm trying to follow the CDC guidelines to the best of my abilities. But once I'm in my house, there's no evidence that the virus is in my house and that I should be behaving in any you know, sort of specific way that's extra, extra, extra hygienic as opposed to just appropriately hygienic. And this can be very confusing for people with OCD who are often very susceptible to moral pressure, right? The idea that they might not have been responsible enough can be very scary for someone with OCD because of the way that they process information and the way that they experience uncertainties about that sort of thing. So when you see all these jokes out there about how this is the world people with OCD have been waiting for or you're supposed to be washing your hands until they're trapped and bleeding – it's so, it's so reductionist. You know, it's, so, it's such an oversimplification of what's actually a, a complex issue. Yes, we should be washing our hands uh, when we're engaging in certain behaviors and we should be following the CDC guidelines and social distancing and being careful, but it's not open season to just you know, be compulsive. Compulsive is still compulsive. If you're doing it for a good reason, if you're doing it because it's appropriate, if you're doing it and it's good for you, then by definition, it's not compulsive. You're not compelled to do it. You're doing it because that's what you're supposed to do.
0: That's a great way to frame it. I like how you just said that, that what's the function behind me doing it? If I'm doing it because I want to do it and I feel comfortable doing it, then who said it's a problem? And you said earlier about doing enough. I think that's, that's the key word. It's not doing it Doing it perfectly, getting it all. And, and the way the mind of someone who struggles with OCD is always with that tug of war of, am I doing enough? Am I doing it either right? Am I, can I be sure I wanna be sure? And none of us can be sure in this. So our goal is not to do it good. Our goal is to do it good enough because that's the only thing that we can do. And all that information, we're bombarded with information. And so, a lot of times it's very confusing. Do this, and then it changes an hour later. Do this. Don't do this. Don't do that. And it's it's just, we're bombarded. It's a wave after wave of information, some misinformation, do this and don't do that. That for, you know, the lay person who has never dealt with OCD, it's confusing and, and overwhelming and can create some level of anxiety, but certainly someone with OCD who's now... All this information, well, what do I do? What's the right thing to do? Should I do this? Should I not do this? And no one can really answer that. And so, yeah, I, I agree. It, this this can this can heighten the, that circular rumination type of, of thinking. And that information out there that is oversimplifying things and making OCD sound like it's a good thing is just insensitive, it's unfair, and it's just not very productive. I'm curious what's going to happen in, you know, we talked about how the post-COVID era is going to look. I'm curious from a clinical perspective, and I'm sure there'll be plenty of research done at some point on this, what's going to happen in three, four, five, six months of people sort of living under this intense pressure to Prevent and avoid and intervene for a, an extended period of time. And then at one point it will end So we have been so hyper vigilant and so uptight about it Is that going to turn into some more obsessive thinking even when the threat is no longer there?
1: Yeah, it's also unfortunate that we actually have been I think within the last few years making some incredible strides breaking down stigma about having OCD and about getting treatment for OCD and cutting through some of this, you know, OCD is a big joke nonsense to actually getting people to understand that it can be a really debilitating and painful disorder. I, I worry that we will have lost some of that in the post-COVID era, that we'll have to kind of not start over, but that a few steps forward and a few steps back sort of situation when it comes to getting people to understand the difference between a mental health issue and being very clean for, yeah. you know, as one example.
0: So just, uh, we have a couple more minutes left here. And before we share some final observations, I had an interesting question that came up just in the last week or so is, I don't think it's just for our clients. I think it's for, for everybody. We're all trying to hopefully try to abide by recommendations and guidelines and social distancing and all that to try to protect either ourselves or the public. Because even if we're not gonna be affected, there's other people that will get affected. Now, how would you respond if someone is struggling with that, you know what, I have a really good friend, or I have a family member, even if they're not in my house, and maybe it's heightened for someone who already has anxiety and is hypervigilant anyway, perhaps. But even if not, I think I'm trying to be responsible and do my part. And this other person, we're not going to pick on a certain age group or not, because it's happening in all different types of age groups who are just seemingly flippant about it. And I'm just not, it's either I don't think it's going to affect me or I don't really care. And it's, it's one thing to be reckless with yourself. It's another thing to be reckless with other people. And I thought it was a really... I thought it was a really good question. It's not necessarily a parallel to someone who might get into a car while they're under the influence and putting other people in danger. But on some some level, it's a irresponsibility and putting other people in danger. At the same time, they are longtime friends or their family. And what am I supposed to do? Not have a relationship ever again? I don't know if there's an answer to this, but I thought it was worthwhile bringing it up because I thought it was a really valuable food for thought that came up in the last week.
1: It reminds me a lot of of politics and the impulse that we have to tell people how to vote. Right? So you think like, hey, if you don't vote for this guy or if you do vote for this guy, it could be bad for America. It could hurt all of us. It could affect the Supreme Court. It could affect your right to do this or your right to do that. And we feel all this pressure when we know somebody that we love and that we think is otherwise, you know, uh, a decent human being, to say, "Listen, you need to take this more seriously. You know, you need to vote for this person or not vote for this person." So it doesn't always come from just a kind of base desire to control others or make them like yourself. Sometimes it feels like, "Hey, no, this is about something bigger than us and this is in your best interest too and if you don't see it, I'm here to help you because I care about you." So there's that dynamic here as well where if you know of somebody who's uh, not engaging in social distancing or or following the CDC guidelines, Um, you know, they may be harming themselves, you might be worried about them, or you may know that they have this attitude where they're just sort of intent, you know, they're just a defiant person, and they don't like being told what to do. And now the government's telling them where to go and that sort of thing. And I don't have an easy answer for that. I think it has to come down to your own personal moral inventory, and also making a guess as to how much control you really think you have, or you really think you're capable of trying to exert. And it's probably on a spectrum. Right? It's like, okay, for this individual, I have this many units of control, of power, that I can, and energy that I can put into this. And I'm going to say, hey, you're a person I care about. You need to take this seriously in this way. And then if there's too much pushback, then it's like, well, I did the best that I could, but it really pains me that you're taking this risk and that you're harming others. And I expected more from you, but I still love you. But I think maybe we have to not talk about this for now. And it's got to be different for everybody, I would guess.
0: Yeah, I agree. That that sort of touches on a couple of the, couple of the components that I shared with him is acknowledging what we can and can't control, to to simplify a little bit, you know, with other people, what is in our control of influencing and advocating and all that, and then doing a little bit of like a cost benefit of, you know, on one hand, I really value our relationship, for this and this and this reason, whether it's be blood. <laughs> or because of of other reasons and on the other side this is something that's a such a diametrically opposed value system that really hurts me to be around and i you know i have a hard time sitting with that so everyone on their own has to sort of do that own calculation for themselves so as this is this is great john i appreciate it before we really say goodbye any sort of parting thoughts of what from your perspective, you hope people take out of this whole experience? Of course, like we said, it's challenging. It's really testing us. There's a lot of pain and loss, but in the post COVID era, what do you hope people glean from this? If there is what to glean from this going through this really challenging experience?
1: Well, self-compassion And the the development of self-compassion skills is the first thing that comes to mind. And I, I hope that with people being limited and being forced to spend more time with themselves or with their families, and you know, sort of less distracted than they might normally be by their work or other obligations, that they get an opportunity to to have a little bit more curiosity about how their minds work and how maybe they can learn to love themselves and let go of some of these judgments about how they're supposed to be feeling or supposed what they're supposed to be thinking. You know, we were talking before about these little silver linings and spending more time at home. Now that I'm not going to the office, I'm seeing my children more and and I'm just like in meditation where you remove all of these distractions, you know, you don't have your phone, the TV's not on. And so, okay, so then you just sit and then you, sub- after a while, you, you you suddenly realize that you're taking an interest in what's going on. You're noticing thoughts arising, you're knowing, feelings, noticing feelings arising. And I know this isn't the experience for everybody, but for a lot of people, it it stops being boring or if it gets boring, that that boredom becomes another thing that's kind of interesting. Like, oh, look look at that boredom. So being confined to my home has me noticing these little things that I always just assumed that I valued, but I didn't realize how much I valued them. And I noticed, for example, I've been mostly seeing my children for a brief period of time right before bed. (laughs) This is like kind of my lifestyle. And this is a much healthier lifestyle. I get to see all parts of them in, in different ways, you know, and... I don't want to lose that when, when life goes back to quote unquote normal and I'm leaving the house and I'm not around for lunch and things like that. I, I want to at least remember it or maintain it so that if I can carry it with me so that it can be, it can help me along the way. So that's I guess a, I hope people come away with a uh, greater sense of appreciation for those things that they uh, may have overlooked because they were distracted all the time.
0: Yeah. That's a, that's a beautiful thought in a way. It's again, not to minimize anything, I always try to talk to myself and see challenges that come across as opportunities. If we can take this as an opportunity to gain some of that self-introspection and reconnect and realize what we have, connect with what we value, it's almost like we're not stopping and smelling the flowers. It's like taking the flowers and shoving it up our noses. Okay. (laughs) Now you can't smell anything else. Smell these flowers. (laughs) You know, it's so in a way, you know, it's an opportunity. I think it would be tremendous if we, if we walked out of this, having that better appreciation and being more connected, I think we would all be better for it. John, thank you again. I appreciate it. People have heard me before. They know how to connect to me if they want. If someone wanted to, they appreciated what you heard. And how would they be able to connect with you?
1: Um, I can be reached through my website at ocdbaltimore.com and in the, in the contact page there.
0: Okay, great. If you are still listening to this and you enjoyed, please just take a moment and you can rate this podcast. You can review all that good stuff. And thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day, everybody.
1: Thanks for having me.